0: This is the last Sunday now that I'm going to tackle a fresh initiative in this little booklet, which is our vision statement. And so if you see one under the pew in front of you on a hymnal, grab it. I'm going to ask an usher or two or three to grab a handful of these, because my guess is that some of the people in the first service took these with them, which I told them they could, so that some of the people here now are going to reach and not find one. And so if a few of you could uh, back there in the uh Commons could grab a handful of these from behind the information table and walk to the front here, even while I'm talking, and walk back. And as they walk back, just raise your hand. If you don't have your hand on one of these little books, then raise your hand, and we'd like to have one in your hand. You're sure welcome to take these with you, because uh, I'm not going to be tackling the content of this any longer. We've been doing this since last fall, and uh, I'm finishing the Fresh Initiatives this morning. Here comes uh, Ben and Gordy. So if you don't have one of these in your hand and you like to be looking on as I preach, I think that would be good. So just flag them down as they walk by. If you have one, turn with me to page three. What you've got in your hands, if you're a visitor and you haven't seen this before, is a document that our master planning team and elders produced over a year long effort of prayer and planning to help define who we are and where we're going On the front page is a mission statement. It also is on the banner there, hanging underneath our 125th anniversary seal. Spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. That's why we exist. That's the heartbeat of our life. Now, growing out of that mission are on page three. Six fresh initiatives. I've preached a sermon on each one of these, except number six, which I'm taking up today. I chose today for it because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. And my goal in this message is first to show you why a commitment to that mission statement yields this fresh initiative. And then in the process of showing you that, stir you up to embrace this initiative and live it out, particularly as it regards the sanctity of life and the cause of life in our culture. So let me read number six with you. Challenging church and culture with the truth. We will challenge our culture And the wider Christian movement in fresh ways with the biblical truth of God's all satisfying supremacy. By courageous Christian action and speech in the secular world. So my question now, as we begin, is. Why does it follow from that mission commitment to the supremacy of God? that this would be one of our fresh initiatives. And I've got about four reasons. Number one. Believing in the supremacy of God leads you to believe in the existence of absolute truth. Believing in the supremacy of God in all things leads you to believe in the existence of absolute truth. Truth. Now, when I say absolute truth, I mean what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. <clears throat> true truth, meaning unlike many of us use it today, true for you, true for me. What's true for you may not be true for me. And what's true for me may not be true for you. He's saying, well, that's one way to talk about truth, but that's not true truth. True truth or absolute truth is something that's true whether you believe it or not, or I believe it or not, or you like it, or I like it, or whether we're alive or dead or not. It is out there and it is absolutely true apart from my subjective feelings or thinking about it. And my first point is that if you believe in the supremacy of a creator God, You're committed to the existence of absolute truth. Now, there are a lot of people in our culture, a lot of influential people and a lot of influenced people who don't believe that. Who don't believe in existence, in the existence of absolute truth. And therefore, when they hear this challenging church and culture with the truth, it sounds to them absolutely Presumptuous and arrogant. Who are you to think you know the truth and are going to speak it over the whole culture? We, we do not live in a situation where this kind of fresh initiative is looked upon with a great deal of admiration. And the question is, how can we make this a fresh initiative? And the answer is We believe in the supremacy of God. If God is supreme, then we don't come into the world defining God or shaping God or making God. We come into a universe of givens. It's just filled with givens. God is simply there. He's just there. And he shapes me and he defines me. And he makes me, and I yield and bow to him, his thoughts and his ways. And that's truth with a capital T. God is. He is one way and not another way. He thinks some thoughts and not other thoughts. He acts some ways and not other ways. And so God and all he thinks and all he is and the way he acts is the reality that I have to deal with. And I don't shape it. It's just a given. It's just there. And that's very offensive in our culture. That I come into a world that's just filled with givens that I've got to deal with. I have to shape my thinking around that. My acting around that. Rather than saying, here's the way I feel. You shape around me. Or here's the way I will act. You shape around me. A lot of people are recreating God. In order to make him fit our desires to be God and to be sovereign today. But it won't work. Here's a word from the Apostle Paul that's absolutely stunning. First Timothy 315. I write to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark or support of the truth, that is amazing. Listen to that again. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, "I'm writing to you, Christians, there in Ephesus. This is to, to Timothy in Ephesus, to tell you how to live in the household of God, which is the church. Namely, the church is the Pillar. This is this thing right here. Holds the ceiling up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, eight of them hold the roof up. And the roof is the truth. And he says the church is the pillar of the truth. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? This is motley crew here? We are the pillar of the truth? And the answer is yes. How can he say that? I think he can say it because he's pointing to the household of God. Not the household of God, but the household of God. The people who believe In the supremacy of God, the the people who in all of their imperfections, in all of their half-seeing eyes, who believe that there is a great creator, redeemer God over all the universe, who is Alpha and Omega, are, for that reason, the pillar and the bulwark, the guardian and the upholder of truth. Because where God goes in the society, where God goes, truth goes. And where God is upheld, truth is upheld. And nobody is upholding the supremacy of God except the household of God. And therefore, it makes sense to say the church is the pillar and the bulwark of truth. And that is very unpopular. God is unpopular because he's such a given and he's so real and so firm that he can't be shaped and made and molded into our likeness. And then the church is unpopular because the church keeps upholding that kind of God and saying, yes, yes, look at him, deal with him. He's real. We have a passion for him. We mean to spread a passion for him and let the chips fall where they will. It's very Unpopular. The universe is not a democracy. The universe is very old fashioned. It is a monarchy. It is an absolute monarchy. And monarchies are not popular today. And so the universe is not popular. God is quite out of it in his political ways. Being the absolute monarchy. Nobody votes God into existence. Nobody votes him into office. You have no vote. I have no vote. It's sort of so offensive. I mean, that's that's totalitarianism. The universe is a totalitarian state. Just happens to be ruled by a very benevolent dictator. So you can see God has a lot against him in America right now, and the church, who stands for that kind of absolute sovereign is um, not a popular organization. Romans 125, the apostle says this, speaking of ordinary people apart from the Holy Spirit, he says they exchanged the truth of God. That's a very important phrase. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 18, he says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that is, every human being created in the image of God, which we all are all lost and all distorted. But every one of us created in the image of God has a love, hate relationship with the absolute. Let me illustrate this with a, a, a Yale law professor named Arthur Leff, who gave a talk at Duke University in 1979, which I read parts of recently. And... Uh, He died recently also, and he illustrated, he's not a believer, the love-hate feeling that every human has toward this absolute issue. Here's what he said. I want to believe, and you do too, in a complete transcendent and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, Findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us on how to live righteously. I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing. But rather, that we are wholly free, not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves individually and as a species what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time to discover what is right and to create, create what is right. So it's just, there's this love-hate relationship towards the right or the absolute or the objective or God outside of us. And we say, oh yes, we need that. there's No, we don't want that tug that every one of us has felt. And Paul says in Romans 1, apart from the Holy Spirit, everybody is suppressing the one and embracing the other. We suppress objective absolute reality, suppress that truth. No, no, it's too confining. It's too limiting. It's too defining. I can't be what I want to be. And then embracing, I'll create truth, I'll create God, I'll create right and wrong after my own image. And that's true. That's the way we are apart from the Holy Spirit. If God exists, if there is a supreme God, then we must define Right, wrong, good, bad, beautiful and ugly, wise and foolish, according to God, not ourselves. And that is a threat to the autonomy, the independence, the self-sufficiency of human beings. Because we want not to be controlled like that. We don't want to come into the world that's full of givens. We want to come in and make it the way we want to make it so that it fits our desires. Which is why God is an unpopular person and why the church as the pillar and bulwark of the truth is an unpopular institution. Now, that's reason number one for why I believe believing in the supremacy of God leads to challenging church and culture with the truth. But before I go to number two, let me caution you. Lest I be misunderstood. I am not saying that any of us Christians can see the whole truth. The whole truth. None of us sees the whole truth. God alone is the whole truth, sees the whole truth. We will never, I think, ever see the whole truth. My view of eternity is that we will, for eternity, be growing in seeing new vistas of God. We'll never be bored in heaven. Ever. We'll never say, oh, now I know everything and I'm like God. Never. But we will keep seeing more of God. But at least now, whether you agree with that or not, at least now, none of us sees the whole truth. A second thing is, we know the one who is the truth? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nevertheless, even in the truths that we do know, we don't see them perfectly. First Corinthians 13. We know in part. We prophesy in part. We see through a glass darkly. So in all of my talk about us being the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. Saying we must speak the truth. I'm not implying any absoluteness in my subjectivity about this. We know the one who is the truth. We know the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in himself. And he has spoken plainly in his word on all that is essential for us. And it is clear. Second, Timothy three sixteen. The man of God is equipped for every good work, if he knows the Bible. Every good work. It is sufficient. All that is essential to believe and all that is essential to do on our way to heaven is clear in the scriptures for us to embrace and to live by. Here's the last thing I I affirm. I believe God Almighty, in spite of all my finitude and all my imperfection wants me to be confident in the truth. Now I don't say that just because of my personality, which prone is prone to want confidence. I say it because I see texts like Romans fourteen five, where even on an issue like wine and meat offered to idols, Paul says, Let each of you be fully assured in his own mind. Which means if you're on the fence, drop off, even if you drop off on the wrong side. That's what he says. Let each of you be fully assured in his own mind. God, here's my, my belief. God is in the business of picking people up off the wrong sides of fences. He doesn't touch people on fences. He doesn't like lukewarmness. He spits lukewarmness out of his mouth. I have a profound conviction as I read the Bible that truth and the cause of the gospel, the cause of life and hope and joy and forgiveness and salvation advances in the world, not through fence sitters, lukewarm, indecisive, ambiguous. Well, I just don't know people. It advances through people who, like the Apostle Paul say, Second Timothy one, twelve. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. Can you say that? I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. Where do martyrs come from? Martyrs are the seed of the church. Talk about Muslim evangelism. There's not going to be a completion of the Great Commission without martyrs. I don't say that just because I'm bloody, but because of Revelation 6.11. Revelation 6:11, the martyrs under the altar cry out to the Lord, How long? How long, O oh Lord, until you vindicate our blood? And he says, not until the full number of the martyrs come in. It's not over yet, folks. There's going to be some more. Where do they come from? Fences? They don't come from fences. They come from people who have a passion for the supremacy of God. Lukewarmness is an offense to God. Risk it. You know, one of the biggest problems in leadership, pastoral leadership, business leadership, governmental leadership. Indecisiveness. Paralysis. I'm just not sure what to do about this. And I am really vulnerable to this. You need to pray for me. I am not the leader I should be in many situations even though you hear me preach, you only know me as a preacher. I always sound decisive when I preach. You should watch me flop around like a jellyfish at the staff meetings. Just ask any of the staff. Ask him what this guy's like at a staff meeting. Oh, I don't know how long we should. I don't know whether we should have Wednesday on I don't know whether we should do this or that. What do you think? What do you think, Tom? What do you think, David? Three to three. Greg, cast the deciding vote. That's how we decided to have the organ for Advent. Now, my point is, pray for me. It's not good to have a leader who can't make decisions. Better to have some wrong decisions along the way than to have a fence sitter who's paralyzed by indecisiveness. That's true. Because that's what the Apostle says in numerous places. Look up the word. If you want to do a concordance thing this afternoon, look up the word full assurance. Look up the word assurance or confidence or conviction in your uh, concordance when you go home this afternoon and find them for yourself and you'll feel the same thing. I I did all last week when I was away up at Shalom House, it got snowed in, had to stay an extra day. I spent about 12 hours a day reading Martin Luther and reading about Martin Luther because I got a lecture on Martin Luther at the pastor's conference next week, week, week after next, whenever it is, about 10 days. And I'm just full of Martin Luther, and you know what Martin Luther was like. He was just a Vesuvius of confidence about everything under the sun, including all the wrong things that he said, which there were a few. But we all remember him for this. The Pope, the Emperor at the Diet of Worms said on pain of your life and your excommunication, recant what you have written. And he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scriptures and by evident reason. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot, I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. God, help me. And what I hear in that Acting against conscience is neither safe nor sound. I hear a statement something like, it is conceivable I could be wrong on the gospel. But as I see scripture, and as my conscience is gripped by the scripture, I cannot live on that possibility. And you can't either. To live on the possibility that you might be wrong is no life. You've got to get a life. And the only way to get a life is to get a conviction. And the only way to get a, get a conviction is with your conscience to be immersed in the word of God until it is chained to what you see there. It doesn't mean you can't change. But it's why change is so hard. It's why we shed tire, t- tears through big paradigm shifts in theology and and views on various things because we've held something church. I remember I I disagree with my precious dad on a few things like eschatology. We don't talk much about it anymore, but I remember the early days when we tried to talk about it and it was so painful because he said, Johnny, I can remember this sentence. I was a junior in college, I think. He said, Johnny, if you're right, I've misled people for 37 years of ministry. That's hard. That's hard, James. But it's possible. But I would take my dad's conviction over a thousand wishy-washy preachers. Who agree with me? I would preach that view, Daddy. He's coming. We don't agree with exactly the timing of the way he's coming, but oh, I don't want you to sit on the fence or say, "Oh, I don't know whether he's coming or not." You know. Argument number two for why this mission statement leads to this. Number six, fresh initiative goes like this to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. You have to speak and act on his truth. I'm focusing on the word spreading a passion now, not the supremacy of God, but spreading a passion. How do you spread a passion? Silence and inactivity spreads nothing good. Diseases spread that way. Passion doesn't. Good things spread when you speak of them. Picture yourself in a party, just kind of a kind of a hang loose, do nothing party, you know that kind. Everybody's standing around, holding glasses or something. He's talking and he's just kind of standing around for three hours. And and uh, God walks into the room. God walks in and uh, he's kind of standing there off in the corner. And nobody does anything. A few people look up and see and go. Kind of laugh or snicker or kind of look embarrassed. But most people just go on thinking, do nothing. You know what that's a picture of? America. American society. And, and some of you, I'm afraid. Get up in the morning, go to work, work all day, come home. Oh, that's right. A God exists. So I should pray before I go to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I'm so, Lord keep. Something like that. I mean. And, uh, and and maybe do it in the morning and then go to the party all day long and drink and work and, and come home. That's the way we live. Now, that's not a passion for the supremacy of God. That's the opposite of a passion. If you have a passion for the supremacy of God, as soon as he comes to the door, say, whoa, God's here. Let's go. Come on, in. let me let me show you, Joe. This is God. Show him how strong are you are. Do, Do it. This is God. And you, Mary. This is God. Look at him. It's awesome. If you have a passion for the supremacy of God, you open your mouth and you change your life, and uh, you don't let him stand in a corner. Of the party can't can't do it, can't stay in the corner of the party if he's supreme and if you have a passion for him. And so my second argument, real simple, real obvious, if we as a church are driven to spread a passion for the supremacy of God, then like these last two words, last two last line here, we are driven to action and speech in the secular world. It's wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever I go, we got to open our mouths about God. That's argument number two. Here's argument number three. We challenge the church and the culture with truth because ideas have consequences. This gripped the master planning team one day, about a year and a half ago, when I read them a quote from Victor Frankl. I want to illustrate this point, that ideas have consequences. What I mean is, bad thinking leads to bad acting. Or, a society that comes under the sway of serious, false visions of reality, that society is very soon going to start doing some real bad things. Dumb things. Bad thinking leads to bad acting. Now, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish um, psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps. His wife died in the concentration camp. He remarried. He became a world-renowned psychiatrist who wrote, who wrote a book called In Search of Meaning. I think the famous sentence in the book goes like... Uh, Man can endure any how if he has a why to live. Nine million copies that book sold. This is what he said. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared Not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. In other words, philosophies produce atrocities. Bad philosophy produces atrocity. Bad thinking produces bad living. Therefore, we've got to stand up and resist bad thinking. Now, let me clarify something here. Sometimes those of us who have a high view of the Holy Spirit, which I hope I do, and a high view of his sovereignty in opening people to the truth can lead in a wrong way. What I mean is this. I personally believe that you can talk truth until you're blue in the face. And unless the Holy Spirit drives the truth and opens the heart, people are not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe it. They'll say nice or that's your view or. But there won't be any conviction. And so they'll just kind of fade away. The Holy Spirit has to come. Now, you could draw the conclusion from that Oh. The Holy Spirit makes all the difference and truth then becomes real unimportant. That would be a very bad conclusion to draw from what I'm saying, because here's the truth, the truth. The Holy Spirit is sent not to replace truth, but empower truth Let's say it again. The Holy Spirit is sent not to replace truth, but to empower truth. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit is not going to evangelize one single person in the world. Or one nation in the world. Only human beings evangelize human beings. Now, they have no success without the Holy Spirit. Zero success. He is essential, but so is truth essential. The gospel is most essential, but all the other truth is essential. And here's another thought that is so mind-boggling to me. See if you can get this. If the fabric of truth is a seamless fabric, the whole truth is one seamless garment, then speaking truth on any issue anywhere strengthens the fabric of truth on every issue everywhere. That's a mind-boggling thought to me. You say it again, if, if truth is a seamless fabric, truth on every issue is God's seamless fabric, if you speak the truth and uphold the truth on any issue anywhere, it strengthens truth on every issue, everywhere, which leads me to this conclusion. God only knows, and we'll find out in heaven how often A gospel testimony about the cross of Christ, about the holiness of God, about the sinfulness of man, about the necessity of faith, about the hope of eternal life, about the forgiveness of sins. A gospel testimony has been made hearable and understandable in a person's mind and heart because of 10,000 other truth influences that went into what made this person the way he was. The fabric of truth, the fabric of reality that has been shaping him and molding him in all of his feelings and in all of his thinking has been fed into by thousands and thousands of truth statements or error statements along the way. And who knows how many hundreds of those you made that somewhere down the line in five years or ten years, a person is going to hear a gospel message and the framework of his whole life. As imperfect as it is, having been built by all these other truth influences, is going to be more susceptible than had they not happened. Which means, everywhere and all the time, speak the truth. You just have no idea on every issue. Every academic issue in the the schools, on every political issue, on every social issue, on every religious issue, on every philosophical issue, on every uh, civic issue, when you speak the truth over and over, PTAs, letters to editors, books and articles and conversations and, and meetings of all kinds, you do not know How you are strengthening the fabric of truth when sometimes against tremendous odds, you just speak the truth and it holds back a deterioration and a collapse of error in our society that makes the gospel less understandable. J. Gresham Machen, the great scholar from Westminster Seminary in its founding days, pled with the church in his day to do what he called pre evangelism. By simply standing for true truth. There is truth. And standing for a piece of truth here and a piece of truth there and a piece of truth here. Because he said, one of the greatest dangers to the gospel is that a society would start to crumble in a view of truth here and a view of truth here and a view of truth here until the very possibility of grasping the categories of the gospel is gone. Then what do you do? If those foundations have crumbled, what do you do? You've got to say to the person a sentence and they say, I don't believe in sentences. I don't believe in verbs. Propositions have no meaning. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Let me close. With a reference to abortion. We at our church, according to our value statements in here on page uh, six, that is devoted, number 19, left column on page six, a strong commitment to a diverse and balanced pro life engagement. When you leave here, if you want to, you can see all those tables of different ways to be involved in the pro life engagement. What I want to stress as we close is that the fourth reason for embracing this fresh initiative is that we need to stand up and point out the bad thinking behind the pro-choice position. The bad thinking, which is leading to deadly behaviors towards children and is leading to destruction for society and is leading to scorn for the supremacy of God. And here's the way I'll illustrate it in closing. We have a law in Minnesota called the fetal homicide law, fetal from fetus, unborn child, homicide from murder. The law says this, this is a quote from the Minneapolis Tribune. The law makes it murder to kill an embryo or fetus intentionally, except in cases of abortion. The law. Says it is murder to kill an embryo or fetus intentionally, except in cases of abortion. Now, analyze that with me for just a moment. Why is it wrong and illegal to take the life of an embryo in one case and right and legal to take the life of the embryo in the other case? What's the defining criterion? Answer. The will of the mother. If she chooses for the child to live, it is murder to kill it. If she chooses for the child not to live, it is not murder to kill it. Now, think about the implications of this. What this is saying is we have now in our laws in Minnesota... Codified and enshrined a justification of some life taking that is based on and rooted not in the crimes of the victim, but the will of the strong. Alone. Mark it. Alone. One decisive criterion determines whether it is murder. Or not murder. The will of the strong. There's a name for that. It's called anarchy. Which means that we have built into our legal structure now the powers that will undermine the legal structure. The presupposition of all constitutional law is the dignity of human life. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. When life is now made the whim of the will of the strong, and that is built into our law, the law itself has put the explosive, destructive element in itself. My own personal conviction is it cannot long survive, historically speaking. A nation who codifies anarchy cannot long survive. But more important, I suppose, than whether or not our nation survives, that's a small blip on God's screen, whether America survives, is this fact. When the pro-choice worldview or reasoning Says. I will not lose the right to choose. I will not lose the right to choose. And absolutizes choice over against objective values like law, human dignity or God and says, I make law by my choice. I make my own dignity. My dignity consists in my independent choosing. I become God through my choosing. When that happens. More important than the destruction of a nation is that God is dethroned. Behind the pro-choice reasoning is the unwillingness to let reality, and that means ultimately God, limit choice. We're committed at Bethlehem to the supremacy of God in all things including life and death. We will not support the intrusion on God's supreme rights as a life fashioner and maker. My prayer for you as we stop now is that you would embrace this number six. You'd embrace it. And you say, like I say, This is not our whole ministry. It's not even our main ministry at Bethlehem. It's one ministry. And it's an important one. To speak the truth on all the issues where we have revelation is important. For God's sake. Father in heaven, as we close and go now. I pray you. Sanctify this message to our lives. I pray that this weekend would be a breaking of the powers of darkness and death in our land. And that great mercy would be poured out upon those who have walked through abortion in this room. That they would feel the hope of forgiveness through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that flows from the supremacy of your grace. We're here at the front for a few minutes afterwards to pray with anybody who wants to pray. About that or about any other issue, we'd love to pray with you. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen.